Why has Sir Baldwin Fraser, England's most celebrated brain surgeon, been kidnapped by the sea fan? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for your support. Since we first started in 2007, this podcast has been downloaded over 20 million times. We are still in the top 5% of all podcasts, and we've helped thousands of people become more familiar with the best books ever put to paper. Many thanks to all of you who have stepped up and donated over the years. You can become a supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. If you can step up with $5 a month, that really goes a long way. I just love the thank you code system we've got going. I've always tried to over-deliver, and when it comes to saying thank you, I like to go all out. Thank you so much for helping us out. Again, the website is ClassicTalesAudiobooks, all one word, dot com. We also have a merchandise store and my invention of the hybrid audiobook you can check out. Links for all of these are available in the description for this episode. I hope you're all enjoying the bite-sized portions of The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. The Meditations are being released exclusively through the special features of the Classic Tales app. In the app, tap on the box with the bow on the left when you play the episode. That's the special features area. It's like a present. Today we continue our series of The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. As with last week, and the week before that, as you run into objectionable stuff today, feel free to talk about it with your friends. Point out the problems with your kids. Discuss it. Let's see where we are and clean this out of our culture through honest and informed discussion. And for those of you who like epic World War III sagas, continue listening after the end of the episode to hear a special sneak peek of a book I have recorded that just recently hit the virtual shelves at Audible. Don't miss Battlefield Pacific by James Rosone and Miranda Watson. Military adventure that's epic in its scope and profanity-free. It's special to me because it's also my 500th audiobook. Now it's time for our personal moment. So this week, I, I do this from time to time, I got the kids t-shirts. So I went online and I go to the sites where it's all original art and the artists get like 40% of the actual retail price. So the money goes to the actual artists. So I go and I do a search and stuff that each of the kids likes. So, um, and I got them each like seven t-shirts. Uh, I got Basil. He's my artist and philosopher. He likes uh, Rick and Morty and art, you know. And uh, Seven loves the 80s and drama. He's my actor. And, uh, and so I got some, some stuff for him. Goldie likes uh, Miyazaki films, especially, and female empowerment ones. So I always get her, like, you know, the Rosie the Riveter and uh, things like that. A few of them I got for all three of them. One of them was a music festival. It was, like, the best music festival in the world. And it had all the fictitious bands from, like, Everything it had Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, had Spinal Tap, had Mystic Spiral, Scrantonicity 2, uh, Mouse Rat. It just, it had all of them. It's a lot of fun. So, anyway, that's what we did this week. Those came and we opened them all up and had a lot of fun. That's our personal moment. 
Thank you very much for listening. And now, The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 4 of 7, by Sax Romer. Chapter 15, Zami Reappears Come in, I cried. The door opened and a page boy entered. A cable for Dr. Petrie. I started up from my chair. A thousand possibilities, some of a sort to bring dread to my heart, instantly occurred to me. I tore open the envelope and, as one does, glanced first at the name of the sender. It was signed Karamena. Smith, I said hoarsely, glancing over the message. Karamena is on her way to England. She arrives by the Nicobar tomorrow. Eh? cried Nayland Smith, in turn leaping to his feet. She had no right to come alone, unless— The boy, open-mouthed, was listening to our conversation, and I hastily thrust a coin into his hand and dismissed him. As the door closed— Unless what, Smith? I said, looking my friend squarely in the eyes. Unless she has learnt something, or is flying away from someone. My mind set a whirl of hopes and fears, longings and dreads. What do you mean, Smith? I asked. This is the place of danger, as we know to our cost. She was safe in Egypt. Nayland Smith commenced one of his restless perambulations, glancing at me from time to time, and frequently tugging at the lobe of his ear. Was she safe in Egypt? he rapped. We are dealing, remember, with the sea fan, which, if I am not mistaken, is a sort of Eleusinian mystery, holding some kind of dominion over the eastern mind, and boasting initiates throughout the Orient. It is almost certain that there is an Egyptian branch, or group, call it what you will, of the damnable organization. But Dr. Fu Manchu, Dr. Fu Manchu, for he lives, Petri. Our own eyes bear witness to the fact. Dr. Fu Manchu is a sort of delegate from the headquarters. His prodigious genius will readily enable him to keep in touch with every branch of the movement, east and west. He paused to knock out his pipe into an ashtray and watch me for some moments in silence. He may have instructed his Cairo agents, he added significantly. God grant she get to England in safety, I whispered. Smith, can we make no move to round up the devils who defy us, here in the very heart of civilized England? Listen, you will have not forgotten the wildcat Eurasian's army. Smith nodded. I recalled the lady perfectly, he snapped. Unless my imagination has been playing me tricks, I have seen her twice within the last few days, once in the neighborhood of this hotel, and once in a cab in Piccadilly. You mentioned the matter at the time, said Smith shortly. But although I made inquiries, as you remember, nothing came of them. Nevertheless, I don't think I was mistaken. I feel it in my very bones that the yellow hand of Fu Manchu is about to stretch out again. If only we could apprehend Zami. Nayland Smith lighted his pipe with care. If only we could, Petri, he said. But damn it! He dashed his left fist into the palm of his right hand. We are doomed to remain inactive. We can only await the arrival of Karamana and see if she has anything to tell us. I must admit that there are certain theories of my own which I haven't yet had an opportunity of testing. Perhaps in the near future such an opportunity may arise. How soon that opportunity was to arise, neither of us suspected then. But fate is a merry trickster, 
and even as we spoke of these matters, events were brewing which were to lead us along strange paths. With such glad anticipations as my pen cannot describe, their gladness not unmixed with fear, I retired to rest that night, scarcely expecting to sleep, so eager was I for the morrow. The musical voice of Caramena seemed to ring in my ears. I seemed to feel the touch of her soft hands, and to detect, as I drifted into the borderland betwixt reality and slumber, that faint, exquisite perfume, which from the first moment of my meeting with the beautiful Eastern girl, had become to me inseparable from her personality. It seemed that sleep had but just claimed me, when I was awakened by someone roughly shaking my shoulder. I sprang upright, my mind alert to sudden danger. The room looked yellow and dismal, illuminated as it was by a cold light of dawn which crept through the window, and which completed the luminescence of the electric lamps. Nayland Smith stood by my bedside, partially dressed. "'Wake up, Petre,' he cried. "'Your instincts serve you better than my reasoning. Hell's a foothold, man. Even as you predicted it, perhaps in that same hour the yellow fiends were at work.' "'What, Smith? What?' I said, leaping out of bed. "'You don't mean—' "'Not that, old man,' he replied, clapping his hand upon my shoulder. "'There is no further news of her, but Weymouth is waiting outside. Sir Baldwin Fraser has disappeared.' I rubbed my eyes hard and sought to clear my mind of the vapours of sleep. "'Sir Baldwin Fraser,' I said, "'of Half Moon Street. "'But what?' "'God knows what,' snapped Smith. "'But our old friend's army, or so it would appear, "'bore him off last night, and he has completely vanished, "'leaving practically no trace behind.' "'Only a few sleeping servants were about, "'as we descended the marble stairs to the lobby of the hotel "'where Weymouth was awaiting us.' "'I have a cab outside from the yard,' he said. "'I came straight here to fetch you before going on to Half Moon Street.' "'Quite right,' snapped Smith. "'But you are sure the cab is from the yard? "'I have had painful experience of strange cabs recently.' "'You can trust this one,' said Weymouth, smiling slightly. "'It has carried me to the scene of many a crime.' "'Hmm,' said Smith. "'A dubious recommendation.' "'We entered the waiting vehicle.' and soon were passing through the nearly deserted streets of London. Only those workers whose toils began with the dawn were afoot at that early hour, and in the misty grey light the streets had an unfamiliar look, and wore an aspect of sadness, in ill accord with the sentiments which were now stirring within me. For whatever might be the fate of the famous mental specialist, whatever the mystery before us, even though Dr. Fu Manchu himself, malignantly active, threatened our safety, Caramena would be with me again that day. Caramena, my beautiful wife-to-be. So selfishly occupied was I with these reflections that I paid little heed to the words of Weymouth, who was acquainting Nayland Smith with the facts bearing upon the mysterious disappearance of Sir Baldwin Fraser. Indeed, I was almost entirely ignorant upon the subject when the cab pulled up before the surgeon's house in Half Moon Street. Here— but all else spoke of a city yet sleeping or but newly awakened, was wild unrest and excitement. Several servants were hovering about the hall, eager to glean any scrap of information that might be obtainable, wide-eyed and curious, if not a little fearful. In the sombre dining-room with its heavy oak furniture and gleaming silver, Sir Baldwin's secretary awaited us. He was a young man, fair-haired, clean-shaven, and alert. 
but a real and ever-present anxiety could be read in his eyes. I am sorry, he began, to have been the cause of disturbing you at so early an hour, particularly since this mysterious affair may prove to have no connection with the matters which I understand are at present engaging your attention. Nayland Smith raised his hand deprecatingly. We are prepared, Mr. Logan, he replied, to travel to the uttermost ends of the earth at all times, if by doing so we can obtain even a meagre clue to the enigma which baffles us. I should not have disturbed Mr. Smith, said Weymouth, if I had not been pretty sure that there was Chinese devilry at work here. Nor should I have told you as much as I have, Mr. Logan, he added, a humorous twinkle creeping into his blue eyes. If I had thought you could not be of use to us in unravelling the case. I quite understand that, said Logan. And now, since you have voted for this story first and refreshments afterward, let me tell you what little I know of the matter. Be as brief as you can, snapped Smith, starting up from the chair in which he had been seated and beginning restlessly to pace the floor before the open fireplace. As brief as is consistent with clarity, we have learnt in the past that an hour or less sometimes means the difference between— He paused, glancing at Sir Baldwin's secretary. Between life and death, he added. Mr. Logan started perceptibly. You alarm me, Mr. Smith, he declared. For I can conceive of no earthly manner in which this mysterious Eastern organization, of which Inspector Weymouth speaks— could profit by the death of Sir Baldwin. Nayland Smith suddenly turned and stared grimly at the speaker. I call it death, he said harshly, to be carried off to the interior of China, to be made a mere slave, having no will but the great and evil man who already, already, mark you, has actually accomplished such things. But Sir Baldwin, Sir Baldwin Fraser, snapped Smith, is the undisputed head of his particular branch of surgery. Dr. Fu Manchu may have what he deems useful employment for such skill as his. But, glancing at the clock, we are wasting time. Your story, Mr. Logan. It was about half-past twelve last night, began the secretary, closing his eyes as if he were concentrating his mind upon certain past events. When a woman came here and inquired for Sir Baldwin— the butler informed her that Sir Baldwin was entertaining friends, and that he could receive no professional visitors until the morning. She was so insistent, however, absolutely declining to go away, that I was sent for. I have rooms in the house, and I came down to interview her in the library. Be very accurate, Mr. Logan, interrupted Smith. In your description of this visitor, I shall do my best, pursued Logan, closing his eyes again in concentrated thought. She wore evening dress, of a fantastic kind, markedly oriental in character, and had large gold rings in her ears, a green embroidered shawl, with raised figures of white birds as a design, took the place of a cloak. It was certainly of eastern workmanship, possibly Arab, and she wore it about her shoulders with one corner thrown over her head, again, something like a burnous. She was extremely dark, had jet-black, frizzy hair, and very remarkable eyes, the finest of their type I have ever seen. She possessed beauty of a sort, of course, but without being exactly vulgar. It was what I may term ostentatious, and as I entered the library, I found myself at a loss to define her exact place in society. You understand what I mean? We all nodded comprehendingly, and awaited with intense interest the resumption of the story.
Mr. Logan had vividly described the Eurasian Zame, the creature of Dr. Fu Manchu. When the woman addressed me, he continued, my surmise that she was some kind of half-caste, probably a Eurasian, was confirmed by her broken English. I shall not be misunderstood. A slight embarrassment became perceptible in his manner. If I say that the visitor quite openly tried to bewitch me, and since we are all human, you will perhaps condone my conduct, when I add that she succeeded, in a measure, inasmuch as I consented to speak to Sir Baldwin, although he was actually playing bridge at the time. Either my eloquence, or, to put it bluntly, the extraordinary fee which the woman offered, resulted in Sir Baldwin's agreeing to abandon his friends and accompany the visitor in a cab which was waiting to see the patient. And who is the patient? rapped Smith. According to the woman's account, the patient was her mother, who had met with a street accident a week before. She gave the name of the consultant who had been called in, and who, she stated, had advised the opinion of Sir Baldwin. She represented that the matter was urgent, and that it might be necessary to perform an operation immediately in order to save the patient's life. But surely, I interrupted in surprise, Sir Baldwin did not take his instruments— he took his case with him, yes, replied Logan, for he in turn yielded to the appeals of the visitor. The very last words that I heard him speak as he left the house were to assure her that no such operation could be undertaken at such short notice in that way. Logan paused, looking around at us a little wearily. And what aroused your suspicions? said Smith. My suspicions were aroused at the very moment of Sir Baldwin's departure for as I came out onto the steps with him, I noticed a singular thing. And that was, snapped Smith. Directly Sir Baldwin had entered the cab, the woman got out, replied Logan, with some excitement in his manner, and reclosing the door, took her seat beside the driver of the vehicle, which immediately moved off. Nayland Smith glanced significantly at me. The cab trick again, Petrie, he said. Scarcely a doubt of it. Then to Logan. Anything else? "'This,' replied the secretary. "'I thought, although I could not be sure, "'that the face of Sir Baldwin peered out of the window for a moment "'as the cab moved away from the house, "'and that there was a strange expression upon it, "'almost a look of horror. "'But, of course, as there was no light in the cab, "'and the only illumination was from the open door, "'I could not be sure.' "'And now tell Mr. Smith,' said Weymouth, "'how you got confirmation of your fears.' "'I felt very uneasy in my mind,' continued Logan. "'for the whole thing was so irregular, "'and I could not rid my memory of the idea "'of Sir Baldwin's face looking out from the cab window. "'Therefore I rang up the consultant "'whose name our visitor had mentioned. "'Yes?' cried Smith eagerly. "'He knew nothing whatever of the matter,' said Logan, "'and had no such case upon his books. "'That, of course, put me in a dreadful state of mind, "'but I was naturally anxious to avoid making a fool of myself, "'and therefore I waited for some hours "'before mentioning my suspicions to anyone.' But when the morning came, and no message was received, I determined to communicate with Scotland Yard. The rest of the mystery it is for you, gentlemen, to unravel. Chapter 16 I Track Zame What does it mean? said Nayland Smith wearily, looking at me through the haze of tobacco smoke which lay between us. A well-known man like Sir Baldwin Fraser is decoyed away, undoubtedly by the woman's army, and up to the present moment 
not so much as a trace of him can be found. It is mortifying to think that, with all the facilities of New Scotland Yard at our disposal, we cannot trace that damnable cab. We cannot find the headquarters of the group. We cannot move. To sit here inactive, whilst Sir Baldwin Fraser, God knows for what purpose, is perhaps being smuggled out of the country, is maddening, maddening. Then glancing quickly across to me, to think. I rose from my chair, head averted. A tragedy had befallen me, which had completely overshadowed all other affairs, great and small. Indeed, its poignancy was not yet come to its most acute stage. The news was too recent for that. It had numbed my mind, dulled the pulsating life within me. The S.S. Nicobar, of the Oriental Navigation Line, had arrived at Tilbury at the scheduled time. My heart leaping joyously in my bosom, I had hurried on board to meet Caramena. I have sustained some cruel blows in my life, but I can state with candour that this which now befell me was by far the greatest and most crushing I had ever been called upon to bear, calamity dwarfing all others which I could imagine. She had left the ship at Southampton and had vanished completely. Poor old Petrie, said Smith, and clapped his hands upon my shoulders in his impulsive, sympathetic way. Don't give up hope. We are not going to be beaten. Smith, I interrupted bitterly. What chance have we? What chance have we? We know no more than a child unborn where these people have their hiding place, and we haven't a shadow of a clue to guide us to it. His hands resting upon my shoulders, and his grey eyes looking straightly into mine. I can only repeat, old man, said my friend. Don't abandon hope. I must leave you for an hour or so, and when I return, possibly I may have some news. For long enough after Smith's departure, I sat there, companioned only by wretched reflections. Then, further inaction seemed impossible. To move, to be up and doing, to be seeking, questing, became an imperative necessity. Muffled in a heavy travelling coat, I went out into the wet and dismal night, having no other plan in mind than that of walking on through the rain-swept streets, on and always on, in an attempt, vain enough, to escape from the deadly thoughts that pursued me. Without having the slightest idea that I had done so, I must have walked along the Strand, crossed Trafalgar Square, proceeded up the Haymarket to Piccadilly Circus, and commenced to trudge along at the Oriental rugs displayed at Messrs. Liberty's window, when an incident aroused me from the apathy of sorrow in which I was sunken. "'Tell that cab feller to drive to the north side of Wadsworth Common,' said a woman's voice, a voice speaking in broken English, a voice which electrified me, had me alert and watchful in a moment. I turned, as the speaker, entering a taxicab that was drawn up by the pavement, gave these directions to the door-porter, who, with open umbrella, was in attendance. Just one glimpse I had of her as she stepped into the cab, but it was sufficient. Indeed, the voice had been sufficient, but that sinuous shape and that lithe, swaying movement of the hips removed all doubt. It was Zami. As the cab moved off, I ran out into the middle of the road, where there was a rank, and sprang into the first taxi waiting there, 
"'Follow the cab ahead,' I cried to the man, my voice quivering with excitement. "'Look, you can see the number. There can be no mistake. But don't lose it for your life. It's worth a sovereign to you.' The man, warming to my mood, cranked his engine rapidly and sprang to the wheel. I was wild with excitement now, and fearful lest the cab ahead should have disappeared. But fortune seemingly was with me for once, and I was not twenty yards behind when Zami's cab turned the first corner ahead.' Through the gloomy street, which appeared to be populated solely by streaming umbrellas, we went. I could scarcely keep my seat. Every nerve in my body seemed to be dancing, twitching. Eternally I was peering ahead, and, when leaving the well-lighted West End thoroughfares, we came to the comparatively gloomy streets of the suburbs. A hundred times I thought we had lost the track, but always in the pool of light cast by some friendly lamp I would see the quarry again, "'speeding on before us. "'At a lonely spot, bordering the common, "'the vehicle which contained Zami, stopped. "'I snatched up the speaking-tube. "'Drive on,' I cried, "'and pull up somewhere beyond, not too far.' "'The man obeyed, "'and presently I found myself standing in what was now "'become a steady downpour, "'looking back at the headlights of the other cab. "'I gave the driver his promised reward. "'Wait ten minutes,' I directed. "'Then if I have not returned, you need wait no longer.' "'I strode along the muddy, unpaved path "'to the spot where the cab, now discharged, "'was being slowly backed away into the road. "'The figure of Zami, "'unmistakable by reason of the lithe carriage, "'was crossing in the direction of a path "'which seemingly led across the common. "'I followed at a discreet distance, "'realizing the tremendous potential of this rencontre. "'I seemed to rise to the occasion.' My brain became alert and clear. Every faculty was at its brightest, and I felt serenely confident of my ability to make the most of the situation. Zami went on and on along the lonely path. Not another pedestrian was in sight, and the rain walled in the pair of us. Where comfort-loving humanity sought shelter from the inclement weather, we too moved out there in the storm, linked by a common enmity. I have said that my every faculty was keen, and have spoken of my confidence and my own alertness. My condition, as a matter of fact, must have been otherwise, and this belief in my powers merely symptomatic of the fever which consumed me, for as I was to learn, I failed to take the first elementary precaution necessary in such case. I, who tracked another, had not counted upon being tracked myself. A bag or sack reeking of some sickly perfume, was dropped silently, accurately, over my head from behind. It was drawn closely about my throat. One muffled shriek, strangely compound of fear and execration, I uttered. I was stifling, choking. I staggered and fell. Chapter 17 I Meet Dr. Fu Manchu my next impression was of a splitting headache, which, as memory remounted its throne, brought up a train of recollections. I found myself to be seated upon a heavy wooden bench set flat against the wall, which was covered with a kind of straw matting. My hands were firmly tied behind me. In the first agony of that reawakening I became aware of two things. I was in an operating room, where the most conspicuous item of its furniture was an operating table. Shaded lamps were suspended above it, 
and instruments, antiseptics, dressings, etc., were arranged upon a glass-topped table beside it. Secondly, I had a companion. Seated upon a similar bench on the other side of the room was a heavily built man, his dark hair splashed with grey, as were his short, neatly trimmed beard and moustache. He too was pinioned, and he stared across the table with a glare in which a sort of stupefied wonderment predominated, but which was not free from terror. It was Sir Baldwin Fraser. Sir Baldwin, I muttered, moistening my parched lips with my tongue. Sir Baldwin, how— It is Dr. Petrie, is it not? he said, his voice husky with emotion. Dr. Petrie, my dear sir, in mercy, tell me, what does this mean? I have been kidnapped, drugged, made the victim of an inconceivable outrage at the very door of my own house. I stood up unsteadily. Sir Baldwin, I interrupted. You ask me what this means? It means that we are in the hands of Dr. Fu Manchu. Sir Baldwin stared at me wildly. His face was white and drawn with anxiety. Dr. Fu Manchu, he said. But, my dear sir, this name conveys nothing to me. Nothing. His manner momentarily was growing more distraught. Since my captivity began, I have been given the use of a singular suite of rooms in this place, and received, I must confess, every possible attention. I have been waited upon by the she-devil who lured me here, but not one word, other than a species of coarse badinage, has she spoken to me. At times I have been tempted to believe that the fate which frequently befalls the specialist has befallen me, you understand? I quite understand, I replied dully. There have been times in the past when I, too, have doubted my sanity in my dealings with the group who now hold us in their power. But, reiterated the other, his voice rising higher and higher, what does it mean, my dear sir? It is incredible, fantastic. Even now I find it difficult to disabuse my mind of that old, haunting idea. Disabuse it at once, Sir Baldwin, I said bitterly. The facts are as you see them. The explanation, at any rate in your own case, is quite beyond me. I was tracked. Hush! Someone is coming. We both turned, and stared at an opening before which hung a sort of gaudily embroidered mat, as the sound of dragging footsteps, accompanied by a heavy tapping, announced the approach of someone. The mat was pulled aside by Zami. She turned her head, flashing around the apartment a glance of her black eyes, then held the drapery aside to admit the entrance of another. Supporting himself by the aid of two heavy walking sticks, and painfully dragging his gaunt frame along, Dr. Fu Manchu entered. I think I have never experienced in my life a sensation identical to that which now possessed me. Although Nayland Smith had declared that Fu Manchu was alive, yet I would have sworn upon oath before any jury summonable that he was dead, for with my own eyes I had seen the bullet enter his skull. Now whilst I crouched against the matting-covered wall, teeth tightly clenched, and my very hair quivering upon my scalp, he dragged himself laboriously across the room, the sticks going tap, tap, tap upon the floor, and the tall body, enveloped in a yellow robe, bent grotesquely, gruesomely, with every effort which he made. He wore a surgical bandage about his skull, 
and its presence seemed to accentuate the height of the great dome-like brow, to throw into more evil prominence the wonderful, satanic countenance of the man, his filmed eyes turning to right and left. He dragged himself to a wooden chair that stood beside the operating table and sank down upon it, breathing sibilantly, exhaustedly. Zami dropped the curtain and stood before it. She had discarded the dripping overall, which she had been wearing when I had followed her across the common, and now stood before me with her black frizzy hair unconfined and her beautiful, wicked face uplifted in a sort of cynical triumph. The big gold rings in her ears glittered strangely in the light of the electric lamps. She wore a garment which looked like a silken shawl wrapped about her in a wildly picturesque fashion, and her hands upon her hips leant back against the curtain glancing defiantly from Sir Baldwin to myself. Those moments of silence which followed the entrance of the Chinese doctor live in my memory and must live there forever. Only the laboured breathing of Fu Manchu disturbed the stillness of the place. Not a sound penetrated the room. No one uttered a word. Then, Your Baldwin Fraser, began Fu Manchu, in that indescribable voice, alternating between the sibilant and the guttural. You were promised a certain fee for your services by my servant who summoned you. It shall be paid, and the gift of my personal gratitude be added to it. He turned himself with difficulty to address Sir Baldwin, and it became apparent to me that he was almost completely paralyzed down one side of his body. Some little use he could make of his hand and arm, for he still clutched the heavy carven stick, but the right side of his face was completely immobile, and rarely had I seen anything more ghastly than the effect produced upon that wonderful, satanic countenance. The mouth, from the centre of the thin lips, opened only to the left as he spoke. In a word, seen in profile from where I sat, or rather crouched, it was the face of a dead man. Sir Baldwin Fraser uttered no word, but crouching upon the bench, even as I crouched, stared. Horror, written upon every lineament, at Dr. Fu Manchu. The latter continued. Your experience, Sir Baldwin, will enable you readily to diagnose my symptoms. Owing to the passage of a bullet along a portion of the third left frontal into the posteroparietal convolution, upon which from its lodgment in the skull it continues to press, hemoplegia of the right side has supervened. Aphasia is present also. The effort of speech was ghastly. Beads of perspiration dewed Fu Manchu's brow, and I marvelled at the iron will of the man, whereby alone he forced his half-numbed brain to perform its function. He seemed to select his words elaborately, and by this monstrous effort of will to compel his partially paralysed tongue to utter them. Some of the syllables were slurred, but nevertheless distinguishable. It was a demonstration of sheer force unlike anything I had witnessed, and it impressed me unforgettably. The removal of this injurious particle, he continued, 
will be an operation which I myself could undertake to perform successfully upon another. It is a matter of some delicacy, as you, Sir Baldwin, and slowly, horribly, turning the half-dead and half-living head towards me. You, Dr. Petrie, will appreciate. In the event of clumsy surgery, death may supervene. Failing this, permanent hemiplegia, or the film lifted from the green eyes, and for a moment they flickered with transient horror. Idiocy. Any one of three of my pupils whom I might name could perform this operation with ease, but their services are not available. Only one English surgeon occurred to me in this connection. And you, Sir Baldwin. Again he slowly turned his head. Were he? Dr. Petrie will act as anaesthetist, and, your duties completed, you shall return to your home richer by the amount stipulated. I have suitably prepared myself for the operation, and I can assure you of the soundness of my heart. I may advise you, Dr. Petrie, again turning to me, that my constitution is inured to the use of opium. You will make due allowance for this. Mr. Lee King Su, a graduate of Canton, will act as dresser. He turned laboriously to Zami. She clapped her hands and held the curtain aside. A perfectly immobile Chinaman, whose age I was unable to guess, and who wore a white overall, entered, bowed composedly to Fraser and myself, and began, in a matter-of-fact way, to prepare the dressings. Chapter 18 Queen of Hearts Sir Baldwin Fraser, said Fu Manchu, interrupting a wild outburst from the former, your refusal is dictated by insufficient knowledge of your surroundings. You'll find yourself in a place strange to you, a place which no clue can lead your friends, in the absolute power of a man, myself, who knows no law other than his own, and that of these associated with him. Virtually, Sir Baldwin, you stand in China, and in China we know how to exact obedience. You will not refuse, for Dr. Petrie will tell you something of my wire jackets and my files. I saw Sir Baldwin Fraser blanch. He could not know what I knew of the significance of those words. My wire jackets, my files. But perhaps something of my own horror communicated itself to him. You will not refuse, continued Fu Manchu softly. My only fear for you is that the operation may prove unsuccessful. In that event, not even my own great clemency could save you, for by virtue of your failure, I should be powerless to intervene. He paused for some moments, staring directly at the surgeon. There are those within sound of my voice, he added sibilantly, 
who would flay you alive in the lamentable event of your failure, who would cast your flayed body, he paused, waving one quivering fist above his head, to the rats, to the rats. Sir Baldwin's forehead was bathed in perspiration now. It was an incredible and gruesome situation, a nightmare become reality. But whatever my own case, I could see that Sir Baldwin Fraser was convinced. I could see that his consent would no longer be withheld. You, my dear friend, said Fu Manchu, turning to me and resuming his studied and painful composure of manner, will also consent. Within my heart of hearts, I could not doubt him. I knew that my courage was not of a quality high enough to sustain the frightful ordeals summoned up before my imagination by those words, my files, my wire jackets. In the event, however, of any little obstinacy, he added, another will plead with you. A chill like that of death descended upon me, as, for the second time, Zami clapped her hands, pulled the curtain aside, and Karamena was thrust into the room. There comes a blank in my recollections. Long after Karamena had been plucked out again by the two muscular brown hands which clutched her shoulders from the darkness beyond the doorway, I seemed to see her standing there, in her close-fitting travelling dress. Her hair was unbound, dishevelled, her lovely face pale to the lips, and her eyes, her glorious, terror-bright eyes, looked fully into mine. Not a word did she utter, and I was stricken dumb as one who had plucked the flower of silence. Only those wondrous eyes seemed to look into my soul, searing, consuming me. Fu Manchu had been speaking for some time, ere my brain began again to record his words. And this magnanimity, came dully to my ears, extends to you, Dr. Petrie, because of my esteem. I have little cause to love Karamana, his voice quivered furiously. But she can yet be of use to me, and I would not harm a hair of her beautiful head, except in the event of your obstinacy. Shall we then determine your immediate future upon the turn of a card, as the gamester within me, within every one of my race, suggests? Yes, yes, came hoarsely. I fought mentally to restore myself to a full knowledge of what was happening, and I realized that the last words had come from the lips of Sir Baldwin Fraser. Dr. Petrie, Fraser said, still in the same hoarse and unnatural voice. What else can we do? At least take the chance of recovering your freedom, for how otherwise can you hope to serve your friend? God knows, I said dully. Do as you wish, and cared not to what I had agreed. Plunging his hand beneath his white overall, the Chinaman who had been referred to as Li King Su calmly produced a pack of cards, unemotionally shuffled them, and extended the pack to me. I shook my head grimly, for my hands were tired. Picking up a lancet from the table, the Chinaman cut the cords which bound me, and again extended the pack. 
I took a card and laid it on my knee without even glancing at it. Fu Manchu, with his left hand, in turn selected a card, looked at it, and then turned its face towards me. It would seem, Dr. Petrie, he said calmly, that you are fated to remain here as my guest. You will have the felicity of residing beneath the same roof with Caramena. The card was the knave of diamonds. Conscious of a sudden excitement, I snatched up the card from my knee. It was the Queen of Hearts. For a moment I tasted exultation. Then I tossed it upon the floor. I was not fool enough to suppose that the Chinese doctor would pay his debt of honour and release me. Your star is above mine, said Fu Manchu, his calm unruffled. I place myself in your hands, Sir Baldwin. Assisted by his unemotional compatriot, Fu Manchu discarded the yellow robe, revealing himself in a white singlet in all his gaunt ugliness, and extended his frame upon the operating table. Li King Su ignited the large lamp over the head of the table, and from his case took out a trephine. Other points for your guidance from my own considerable store of experience, Fu Manchu was speaking, are written out clearly in the notebook which lies upon the table. His voice now was toneless, emotionless, as though his part in the critical operation about to be performed were that of a spectator. No trace of nervousness, of fear, could I discern. His pulse was practically normal. How I shuddered as I touched his yellow skin. How my very soul rose up in revolt. There is the bullet. Quick, steady, Petri. Sir Baldwin Fraser, keen, cool, deft, was metamorphosed, was the enthusiastic, brilliant surgeon whom I knew and revered and another that the nerveless captive who, but a few minutes ago, had stared, panic-stricken, at Dr. Fu Manchu. Although I had met him once or twice professionally, I had never hitherto seen him operate. His method was little short of miraculous. It was stimulating, inspiring. With unerring touch he whittled madness, death, from the very throne of reason, of life. Now was the crucial moment of his task, and with its coming, every light in the room suddenly failed, went out. My God, whispered Fraser in the darkness, quick, quick, lights, a match, a candle, something, anything. There came a faint click, and a beam of white light was directed, steadily, upon the patient's skull. Li King Su, unmoved, held an electric torch in his hand. Fraser and I set to work in a fierce battle to fend off death, who already outstretched his pinions over the insensible man, to fend off death from the arch-murderer, the enemy of the white races, who lay there at our mercy. "'It seems you want to pick me up,' said Zarmi. Sir Baldwin Fraser collapsed into the cane armchair. Only a matting curtain separated us from the room wherein he had successfully performed, perhaps— the most wonderful operation of his career. I could not have lasted out another thirty seconds, Petri, he whispered. The events which led up to it, it exhausted my nerves, and I had no reserve to call upon. 
If that last... He broke off, the sentence uncompleted, and eagerly seized the tumbler containing brandy and soda, which the beautiful, wicked-eyed Eurasian passed to him. She turned and prepared a drink for me, with the insolent insouciance which had never deserted her. I emptied the tumbler at a draught. Even as I set the glass down, I realized, too late, that it was the first drink I had ever permitted to pass my lips within an abode of Dr. Fu Manchu. I started to my feet. Fraser, I muttered. We've been drugged. We— You sit down, came Zami's husky voice, and I felt her hands upon my breast, pushing me back into my seat. You very tired. You go to sleep. Petri! Dr. Petri! The words broke in through the curtain of unconsciousness. I strove to arouse myself. I felt cold and wet. I opened my eyes, and the world seemed to be swimming dizzily about me. Then a hand grasped my arm roughly. Brace up! Brace up, Petri! And thank God you are alive! I was sitting beside Sir Baldwin Fraser on a wooden bench, under a leafless tree from the ghostly limbs whereof rain trickled down upon me. In the grey light, which I thought must be the light of dawn, I perceived other trees about us, and an open expanse, tree-dotted, stretching into the misty greyness. "'Where are we?' I muttered. "'Where—' "'Unless I am greatly mistaken,' replied my bedraggled companion. "'And I don't think I am, for I attended a consultation in this neighbourhood less than a week ago. We are somewhere on the west side of Wandsworth Common.' He ceased speaking, then uttered a suppressed cry. There came a jangling of coins, and dimly I saw him to be staring at a canvas bag of money which he held. "'Merciful heavens,' he said. "'Am I mad, or did I really perform that operation? And can this be my fee?' I laughed loudly, wildly, plunging my wet-cold hands into the pockets of my rain-soaked overcoat. In one of them, my fingers came in contact with a piece of cardboard. It had an unfamiliar feel, and I pulled it out, peering at it in the dim light. "'Well, I'm damned,' muttered Fraser. "'Then I'm not mad, after all.' It was the Queen of Hearts. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 4 of 7, by Sax Romer. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Battlefield Pacific.
Book Four of the Red Storm series, written by James Rosone and Miranda Watson, narrated by B.J. Harrison. New Year's Day, London, England. After spending an hour riding on the tube and another forty minutes riding three different buses and taking two different taxicabs, Anthony Chatham was exhausted. Had he not been receiving instructions from his head of security through his Bluetooth headset on what to do next, he never would have been able to figure out how to find the man he was about to meet. Putting all of that aside, Mr. Chatham was no spring chicken, and he felt every bit his sixty-two years of age. He pulled the collar of his coat up and made sure his hat was situated just right to help hide more of his distinctive features, just as his head of security had told him. As the cab approached the cafe near the St. James section of London, Mr. Chatham pulled a twenty-pound note from his wallet and slid it through the hole in the plexiglass wall. Keep the change, he said, as he opened the door to the cab. After the cab pulled away, Mr. Chatham surveyed his surroundings, making sure to keep his head down so as not to be caught by one of the hundreds of thousands of closed-circuit television cameras across the city. Strolling casually down the street, he spotted the slight blue chalk mark on the side of a lamppost across the street that indicated he hadn't been followed. Crossing the street, he spotted the next chalk mark, letting him know the man he was to meet had also not been followed, and he was officially in the clear. He made his way to 7177 Pall Mall in the same St. James section of London. He smiled when he reached the set of stairs that led to the entrance of the extremely exclusive and private Oxford and Cambridge Club. Mr. Chatham quickly climbed the stairs and opened the ornate door. Upon his entering the club, Michelle, his personal assistant, guided him past the check-in desk, where people usually stopped to present their private club cards to gain entry. Walking into this exclusive club was like walking into a time capsule from the early 1900s British aristocracy. It almost felt as if he had walked onto the set of Downton Abbey. Michelle led him up the stairs and down the hall to the Chancellor's suite to meet with his secretive guest. Is he already here? Mr. Chatham asked, hoping he wouldn't need to wait too long. It was a huge risk meeting this man, and if he were caught, it would be the end of not just his political career, but most likely his freedom. Max Weldon was a managing director for Rothschild Group in London. The firm was incredibly wealthy, with a rich and storied family history. It was the investment firm of choice for not just the wealthiest 1%, but the wealthiest 0.01% of the world, which meant Max was often in contact with some of the most influential men and women on the planet. This was not his first time sitting in the Oxford and Cambridge Club. What everyone else at the establishment that night didn't realize was that Max's real name was Maxim Sokolov. He was the senior Russian spy in London, charged with managing a host of both intelligence and sabotage operations across Great Britain. He had been assigned to this post for 26 years, which meant he had now spent more of his adult life living in the UK than he had in any other country. He almost felt British, though he knew that everything he did was in the service of his true homeland, 
Russia. During his undergraduate studies at the University of Oxford, Max had completed an internship with the Bank of England. There he'd met an investment advisor who had worked for Rothschild Group. The man had been so impressed with his language abilities, he'd offered Max a job on the spot. That advisor had no idea that Max had been recruited by the GRU, or Russian Intelligence Directorate, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union. As he had neared the end of his schooling in Switzerland, Max had been tasked with infiltrating the global aristocracy through the financial world. Going to work for the Rothschild Group was the surest way to gain access to some of the world's wealthiest people. Max was a legitimately gifted young man. His father had been a diplomat abroad and married a wealthy French woman while stationed in France. Max had grown up speaking Russian and French on a daily basis. And while he was in school, his parents had made sure he learned English. When he turned 14, he had been sent to the Aiglon College, an exclusive boarding school in Switzerland. It was there that Max had honed his language and finance skills and developed his network of highly connected and influential friends. When he'd graduated, the GRU had ensured that he was accepted to the University of Oxford to increase his likelihood of gaining the level of access Russian intelligence was after. While at Oxford, Max had used his connections from his time in Switzerland to leverage several coveted internships, which had ultimately led to his securing employment with the Rothschild Group. As a financial advisor, he had worked hard to grow his book of business and develop a strong reputation within the firm. Being fluent in English, French, and Russian, he was able to handle a wide variety of clients. His position also enabled him to recruit people sympathetic to the Russian cause. In addition, he successfully obtained a lot of financial dirt on some very influential people, which the GRU made sure to use when needed. In normal times, Max would never have met Mr. Chatham in person. But these weren't normal times, and Mr. Chatham was not a normal man. He could not pass up an opportunity to meet with the leader of the British opposition party. If this meeting went according to plan, Max would have successfully recruited the highest-ranking source of any Russian operative in history. Max was determined to do whatever was necessary to ensure his man moved into 10 Downing Street and Britain left the war. Max was getting impatient. He looked down at his Breitling cockpit night mission watch. Wealth does have its privileges, he thought. Mr. Chatham had a few more minutes before he would be considered late. A moment later, he heard a light knock on the door, and then it slowly opened. In walked Anthony Chatham, the head of the Labour Party, alone, and doing his best to look as inconspicuous as possible. Standing, Max took a step forward and extended his hand to Mr. Chatham, shaking it as they exchanged greetings. Max, I'll come straight to the point, since I don't have very long to meet with you, said Chatham. I understand you have an offer you'd like to make. Max saw Chatham eyeing him over, attempting not to scowl. He really does loathe anything to do with the elite, doesn't he? he mused. Smiling at Mr. Chatham's bluntness, Max gestured for the two of them to sit down. I like a man who is direct and to the point, 
It makes negotiations a lot simpler, he said. Chatham took his hat off and placed it on the table between them. So, this is a negotiation? What is it you're offering? he asked, carefully measuring Max's facial features. Mr. Chatham, as you know, I work for a large, wealthy firm that represents a lot of varying financial interests. War can be profitable, but only profitable if it has been planned well in advance of the opening salvos. This is war without warning, and that has cost some interests I represent a lot of money. Max paused for a second to let his words sink in. There has to be a way to end this war peacefully and return the world back to its normal order. Anthony Chatham covered his mouth to keep himself from snorting. Max knew Chatham held a deep disgust for the rich, but he figured his target would come around once he really thought about the big picture. An awkward moment passed. I agree, peace is in our nation's interest, Chatham conceded. However, to return our nation, if not the rest of the world, back to peace, takes more than the musings of one old man. I'm sure you're aware of my many attempts in Parliament to extricate Britain from this American war. Sadly, the Tories have tied our nation to the whims of that bloviating idiot in the White House who started this entire war. I'm not sure that there's much I can do at this point to change that fact. My concern is with Britain, Mr. Chatham, not America, Max replied. I, like many other Londoners, do not want the country to go down with a sinking ship. We want to salvage what we can and position ourselves to rebound when the eventual recovery from the war happens. To that end, if you were to become Prime Minister, what would be your stance toward the Russian Federation and the Eastern Alliance? Chatham smiled. If I were Prime Minister, I would end British involvement in the war. This is a war that we should not be involved in, and I for one do not believe we should lose any more of our youth fighting a war that the Americans forced NATO into. As to the Eastern Alliance, again, Korea and Taiwan aren't a concern to the UK, and Asia is a long way from Britain. Does that answer your question? Chatham asked. Max nodded. From a business and policy perspective, this makes sense, and that is what the people I represent also want to see happen. Your stance has always been anti-war, and your policies have been focused on solving the problems of Britain and taking care of those in need domestically. I admire that about you, Mr. Chatham, and I'd like to do my best to help you get to 10 Downing Street one day. Chatham rubbed his chin, deep in thought. Sensing some concern, Max pressed in. What would it take for you to become the next Prime Minister? The interests I represent may be able to help, but ultimately we need to know what will make the difference. And please, do not hesitate to tell me exactly what you need, no matter how crazy it may sound. Chatham laughed. Huh. Eliminating half a dozen Tory MPs would be a start, he said jokingly, not realizing that Max was very serious about doing whatever it took to get him into office. Even if it meant offing a few pesky members of Parliament, Chatham paused, calculating a more useful response. 
I need a public relations disaster for the current government, he remarked. Suffering military defeats is one thing. My party is already using that to our advantage with the anti-war marches and protests. But if London and some of our other major cities were ever attacked, especially after the Prime Minister said we were well protected, I think that would go a long way in destroying the moral support of the people for the party in power. If a scandal were thrown in at the same time, it could be enough to cause the current government to collapse, or at least give me the leverage needed to call for a vote of no confidence, he concluded. Max took a deep breath and let it out. That is a big list, Mr. Chatham. I'm not sure that my backers can carry out any or most of that. However, I'll bring it up to them, and we'll try to help where we can. As situations do happen to your advantage, you will need to capitalize on them, Mr. Chatham. If we are to spend enormous political and financial capital to help advance you into the Prime Minister's office, you will have to pay us back some favors when we call upon you. Is that understood? he asked. This was the moment of truth. Would he get Chatham to agree to a quid pro quo? Once he approved their little arrangement, he would forever be ensnared in the web of the GRU and be their perpetual pawn, unless he wanted to be exposed. Mr. Weldon, I won't agree to a blank check of support to the global elites your firm represents, Chatham asserted. His face softened. I have made my positions on the war and internal policies clear, which I believe coincide with your own interests. If I am so fortunate as to become the next Prime Minister, I won't forget those who helped me get there. I will give your concerns due consideration. Max nodded, then pressed him a bit further. If we're able to help you become Prime Minister, your position is that you would end British involvement in the war and sue for a separate peace with the Eastern Alliance, correct? Max asked a bit more directly and forcefully. He needed to know beyond a doubt that Chatham would be sympathetic to their cause if he rose to power. Mr. Chatham looked nervously at his watch. He was probably starting to worry that this meeting was taking too long and thinking about how they might get caught. Mr. Weldon, as I said, if I were Prime Minister, Britain would end our involvement in the war. If I were PM, I'd pursue a separate peace with the Eastern Alliance and end British involvement in the war. Immediately. Max smiled. Got you, he thought. You now work for me, whether you know it or not, Mr. Chatham. Max stood and extended his hand. Mr. Chatham, it was good to finally meet you in person and work through some of these critical details. The world is at a precipice. We find ourselves standing at the edge, looking down into the abyss. If calmer heads do not prevail and step back from the edge, I fear the world may fall into that black nether, and God only knows what may become of us if that happens. I will speak with my backers, and we will do our utmost to ensure you're the next Prime Minister of Great Britain. If we need to meet again, or convey any information between ourselves, my secretary will reach out to yours. Chatham nodded. As he began to turn to leave, Max stopped him. 
One more thing. You'll need to transfer your retirement portfolio to the management of my firm immediately. That will be the cover for any future meetings between us. Chatham nodded again, and the two men left the suite and headed out the building through different exits.